When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He will order you executed. Why? Because I recorded the episode I wanted? The episode you wanted. All right, Alia. The episode you wanted then. Ah, true. But uh, come on. Welcome to Gam Jabbar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. And my name's Abu. And today we're back with part three. Ah! <laughs> part three already. Oh my God. Every episode feels like we'll never make it to the next, and then we do. Somehow. Look at us. Also, our scripts keep getting longer. (laughs) (laughs) That makes no sense. It makes no sense. We're doing (laughs) half the pages this time, and our scripts are like twice as long. Twice as long. Oh, well. Well, let's get through it. We got a lot of script to get through, Leo. Indeed. But before we dive into today's mailbag questions and today's reading. Housekeeping? Some housekeeping. Hey, housekeeping. (laughs) So first and foremost, as always, A huge thank you to our patrons. It's because of your support that we get to make this show week after week and geek out about this universe we love so much. Right. And of course, a very special shout out to our two Kwisatz Haderach level patrons, Case Aiken and Nate Hyde. As I always say, their generosity plus the generosity of everyone who listens and shares this podcast helps us do what we do every single episode. It makes a huge difference. Seriously. Thank you. We also have some sweet Dune merchandise available. So if the monthly support route isn't your bag of tea, check out the bags of tea we're selling. Just kidding. That's not part of it. (laughs) Gomjabarshop.com. We might not have bags of tea, but we do have shirts and stickers and some cool art. So check it out as another way to support the show. That's right. And this is a book club series, folks. So email us, gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you as you read Dune Messiah along with us. Send us your thoughts, your questions, some of which may even make it into the episodes. Of course, our patrons are invited to an exclusive Discord server, which is another great way to connect more directly with me and Leo, chat about Dune, geek out about other geeky stuff, and share your thoughts as you read with us. Yeah. Regarding our spoiler notice for today, we keep our book club episodes, as I'm sure you're familiar now, 100% spoiler free. So our lore discussions, our deep cut morsels, pretty much everything is going to be safe for a first time reader. While, of course, 
honoring those who have read it before with uh, deeper insights and some fun conversations. That's right. All righty. That's housekeeping out of the way. Indeed. So now let's jump into our mailbag section. We have two really great questions from listeners. One is an email and the other is a Discord message. So let's jump in. So the first email is from Coralyn Fevril, is how I'm going to say your name. And I'm sorry if that's not right. <laughs> it reads, I just started listening to your podcast and it is my favorite thing to listen to, especially at work. While driving to work, I had a question pop into my head. Do the Benny Gesserit have hiccups? Like, they control every muscle, and hiccups are caused by a muscle spasm. So, do they have hiccups? Again, love your show and have been binging it nonstop. Long live Space Gilder Johnny. <laughs> space and Guild member Johnny! Hey, Blaze420 to all my Space and Guild yeah. members out there. <laughs> wow. Shouts to maybe one of our oldest jokes on this podcast. That was like episode one. <laughs> yeah. Coraline, what a great question. We love that our listeners are out here asking the hard-hitting <laughs> questions, doing the reporting work on uh -huh. the Dune lore yeah. that we need and love. So I fell down a rabbit hole of learning about hiccups. And Leo, I, I know you're a knowledgeable guy, and I'm sure our listeners are too. But just so we're all on the same level, I wanted to share some basic facts about hiccups. Yeah. So according to WebMD, quote, hiccups start much lower in your body, in the diaphragm, the dome-shaped muscle between your lungs and stomach. If something irritates your diaphragm, it can spasm, forcing you to suddenly suck air into your throat where it hits your voice box. That makes your vocal cords suddenly close, creating the distinct hick sound, end quote. Right. Okay. So now we know the origin story of hiccups. <laughs> Sure. What year this after Guild was that? <laughs> what year after Guild? <laughs> right. I was going to say, it's extremely on brand for Gamjabar that we're now breaking down the origins of hiccups in an attempt <laughs> to answer this question. So WebMD then continues and answers the natural question, what could irritate your diaphragm, right? Right. Well, the answer is actually a number of things. Quote, eating too much or too quickly, feeling nervous or excited, drinking carbonated beverages or too much alcohol, stress, a sudden change in temperature, swallowing air while sucking on candy or chewing gum, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and lists a number of other causes, <laughs> but those are some of the key ones. Gotcha. So backing up and thinking once again about Coraline's incredible question, I think it's clear that from what we now know about hiccups, thank you to WebMD, there is no way that the Bene Gesserit could get hiccups. We talked in our previous episode about Lady Jessica, about the Bene Gesserit training and how it included controlling one's body temperature. It was part of the program that these young candidates in the Bene Gesserit schools went through. And knowing that the Bene Gesserit can control things like their metabolism and even the genders of their babies, I, <laughs> I doubt that drinking too much Coca-Cola or having one too many beers is going to upset their stomach enough or in a way that they can't handle and control to stop that diaphragm from acting up. Indeed. Although I will say, I bet Benny Gesserit fake hiccups to blend in. Ooh. Like if it's a Benny Gesserit of secret rank, I'm sure they can manually create that sort of diaphragmic spasm 100%. So yeah. while they may not be beset by unwanted hiccups, desired hiccups 
convenient hiccups. Oh, I'm sorry. I can't answer your questions about my order's deep secrets. Ah, I've got the hiccups. And the interrogator's <laughs> like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I hate the hiccups. So I right. just wanted to throw that thought out there. <laughs> That's completely fair. You know, maybe there's a guy at work who always calls you a witch. And then one day you have the hiccups around him. And he's like, wait a second. Wait. <laughs> we're not so different after all. She's just like me. You're like, would I have the hiccups every day if I was a witch? And he's if like, I was no, a witch? That's a good point. <laughs> so there is way too much of an answer, Coralyn. Thank you for this incredibly <laughs> fun question about Benny Jesuit control and hiccups. <laughs> the next question comes from George in our Discord. Even on my second reading, I have no clear idea about the relationship between Sightail, Farak, and Farak's son in Chapter 4. They exchange secret codes at the door. They share the same goal, but yet there are two different conspiracies? Why did Sightail have to kill the two men after the transmission? It looked like blurring the tracks, but why if they are part of the same group? So I guess the Fremen dissenters are simply used by Sightail and the group behind the face dancers? That's a really perceptive question, George. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up in our Discord group. Yeah, that chapter is pretty confusing. We spent a lot of time on it in the previous book club episode, but for a first-time reader, it can be tough to untangle this web of conspiracies that is surrounding Paul. And George is actually really, really perceptive here in realizing that, wait a second, is this the same conspiracy that we read about? with Moheim and Edric and Irulan, or is Sightail up to something else with this group of Fremen dissenters? Right. I think what's important to remember throughout this book and throughout Dune in general, and this is a lesson we learned from the first book, is that everyone has a game. Every individual has goals and aspirations. In this scenario, there are multiple conspiracies at work because the Benny Tleilaks have their own plans. The Fremen, who want the good old days to come back, they have their own plans. And ultimately, everyone's really looking out for themselves and then conspiring with one another when it's convenient to do so. Right. There's that, you know, age-old saying, the only way you can guarantee a secret kept between, what is it, three guys is by killing two of them or something super <laughs> cynical and bleak. Sightail's like, the best way for no one to find out what happened in this room is for me to be the only one who walks out of it. Right. Little little known fact, there used to be a third host of Gam Jabbar, <laughs> but we had to kill him so our secrets wouldn't leak. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a messy affair, no doubt. There was Samuda involved and a Coriolis storm. It was wild. Yeah, wild stuff. Now, speaking of Saitil and Farouk and what's going on here, I will say to George's point, it is unclear whether Sidetail is here talking to Farouk because of the plot that we know about with the Guild, the Bene Gesserit, the Hate Gola, sort of the, the A plot, if you will. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or if he's here because of his own Tleilaxu scheming. It could be A, it could be B, it could be a little bit of both. But I will say the fact that he kills everyone in the room once he has the information he needs for me at least, my personal reading of this situation is that Saitil is here on a separate Tleilaxu-only plot. 
and gathering information for himself, and he may or may not choose to even share this with his fellow co-conspirators. But what he doesn't want is for his visit to Farouk to leak and for anyone to find that out. So he's got to tie up every single loose end, and that involves killing everybody. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Much like our third co-host. Right. Who? Who? Sorry. <laughs> Doesn't ring a bell. Doesn't ring a bell. <laughs> and with that, we are done with our mailbag section, and we can get into this week's reading, the next 50 pages of Dune Messiah. That's right. So let's jump into our summary section for today and start off with chapter eight. Irlan is visiting guys, Helen Moheim, who is currently at the moment not in a great place. She's in a cell beneath Paul's keep yeah. in the dungeons, locked up. And Irlan finds Moheim sitting in front of some Dune tarot cards. Once again, we hear about these Dune tarot. We've heard about them time and time again so far. Moheim has these cards spread out in front of her on a pallet. And Moheim turns to Irlan and asks her if she has contacted Lady Jessica seemingly in some sort of bid for help, right? Right. Unfortunately, Irlan responds, quote, yes, but I don't expect her to lift one finger against her firstborn, end quote. Lady Jessica is not about to turn against her son, the emperor, to help out these Bene Gesserit and their scheming. What I find interesting here, Leo, is I'm actually kind of shocked that Moheim and Irulan would even reach out to Lady Jessica. I guess Benny Jesuit sisterhood goes deep and they've all known each other for decades. But in this situation, it feels weird to me that Moheim would be like, did you call Jessica? Like, is she going to help us out? Right. right. Especially because just a few chapters ago, <laughs> Moheim calls Jessica and I quote, a traitorous bitch. It feels weird that she would then be uh, sort of reaching out to Lady Jessica and asking for help. But I suppose desperate times call for desperate measures. So moving on with this scene, we learn that Moheim believes that she won't leave Arrakis alive. She has seen something through these Dune tarot cards, and she has seen glimpses in her own oracular visions. And if you want to learn more about Moheim's prescient abilities, she has some. They're very minor. They've affected a lot of her life. Check out our Moheim deep dive episode in the back catalog to learn more about that. Now, we get our very first hints. I found this really interesting. We get our very first hints here that there might be cracks within the conspiracy itself. And this, again, speaks to George's question from earlier in the mailbag that there are multiple conspiracies working in tandem with each other and against each other. Quote, dark suspicions brooded in her mind and the tarot hinted at confirmations. Was it possible the guild had planned this? End quote. That's Moheim thinking that. And the guild, who she is ostensibly working with, I mean, Edric is in on this plan that they're all seemingly working together on, right. she is now suddenly suspicious of. So again, like you said earlier, Leo, everyone's got their motives, and everyone is both working with each other and getting ready to stab each other in the back at a moment's notice. She's like, something about him smells fishy. <laughs> Irulan's like, is it because he's a fish? <laughs> because he's a fish man? <laughs> Moham's like, no, I think he's betraying me. Irulan's like, damn, I thought you were talking about him being a fish person. <laughs> right. Damn it, Irulan. 
damn it, Irulan, come on. You're great. Just think a little faster. Uh, poor, poor Irulan. <laughs> now, in this moment, we actually have a flashback because Moheim thinks back to the moment of her capture <laughs> on that highliner. Uh-huh. And <laughs> this is such a truly iconic exchange that she has with this yellow-robed Kisra who apprehends her that, uh, Leo, if you could indulge me, I thought we could just act out this scene in full for yeah. our listeners because it's so good. Let's do it. Dibs on the cop. <laughs> <laughs> Dibs on the cop. Great. You okay. can have them. I'll, I'll play Mohai. It uh, came to our attention that you were aboard. Have you forgotten that you are denied permission to set foot on the holy planet? I am not on Arrakis. I'm a passenger on a guild highliner in free space. There is no such thing as free space, madame. Wadib rules everywhere. Arrakis is not my destination. Arrakis is the destination of everyone. End scene. <laughs> Holy shit. Holy shit. Incredible stuff there. There is no such thing as free space. Muad'Dib rules everywhere. Arrakis is the destination of everyone. More proof. We've talked about Paul's legend, his godhead, his worshippers, his fanatical worshippers. And here, once again, is just more proof of that. This is a very, let me talk to your manager. I am the manager. (laughs) (laughs) Shutting it down. Yeah incredible sequence there and what's crazy is that there's even a bit more here in this exchange moheim is obviously sort of pushing back and protesting and the kisara says that the emperor has commanded this and thus quote the thing is ordained end quote Mm. and that word there ordained should set off red flags in everyone's mind and it does in moheim's as well right paul's every command to these people, to the Kizra, to his worshipers, to the Fremen, is a religious order. Yeah. And if you disobey it, you're not breaking the law. You are sinning. Yeah. Which is so wild to think about and should also make all of us think back to that Benny Gesserit axiom that Jessica tells Paul about in the first book about religion and politics riding in the same cart. Right. So let, let's continue this conversation between Moheim and Irulan, because then we flash back to the present here in the cell, and Irulan and Moheim have this sort of nonchalant verbal conversation because there's a guard right outside who can hear them, and so they're not about to like spill any secrets out loud to each other. But they're Benny Jesuit, they're trained in the way of secret encoded messages, and they are having this very tense sort of hand sign, hand signal conversation. Right. While they talk about the weather and shit. And this hand signal conversation is not a good one. Moheim is basically pissed at Irlan for her incompetence so far and commands her to pursue this path, which we're just now hearing about for the first time, this path of a brother-sister crossbreed in order to maintain those precious Kwisatz Haderach genes that Paul and Alia both carry. Remember, that is the most important thing to the Bene Gesserit. It's the thing they have been planning for and scheming for for centuries, for generations. Right, right. And now that it's finally here, it's not in their control. 
and they are desperate to both maintain it and not lose it, and also to bring it back into the fold of their influence. Right. Irlan then reveals that Chani has started this new Fremen keto diet or whatever, and <laughs> she can't administer that secret birth control drug to Chani anymore. Uh, she cut doesn't out have access. All of my contraceptives <laughs> are carb-based. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> right. I mean, she's still presumably drinking water, right? Like, pour some powder in her water. No, oh, she switched it's to carb-free carb water. Clearly, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> carb-free water. <laughs> Moheim loses her shit at this. Moheim yeah. is pissed. "Quote: Damn, such stupidity!" The Reverend Mother raged. Who knew what suppressions and genetic entanglements Chani might introduce from her wild Fremen strain? The Sisterhood must have only the pure line and an heir would renew Paul's ambitions, spur him to new efforts in consolidating his empire. The conspiracy could not afford such a setback. End quote. Oof. And of course, Moheim here is talking about the possibility of Chani actually becoming pregnant and giving Paul an heir. Right. Moheim then commands Irulan to go to whatever lengths she must to prevent Chani from becoming pregnant, up to and including straight up murder and Irulan of course is like really thrown off by this and tries to clap back and claim that she is valuable to this conspiracy as an insider right. she is the closest person to the emperor day in day out and it would be a waste to throw her away in some desperate attack on Chani right Chani may not survive that Irulan certainly won't survive any sort of attack against Paul's lover so to round out this chapter summary, Moheim is in a sour mood. This whole meeting did not go to her liking. And the chapter then ends on her wondering if, quote, Irulan might yet destroy them, end mm. quote. Yeah. Destroy them as in the conspiracy. She right. might do something stupid and harm the precious planning they've done to try and take down Paul. Right. Not a great look for Irulan overall in this scene especially because we see so much of it from Moheim's perspective. And Moheim clearly <laughs> has very little respect for Irulan as both a Benny Gesserit and a fellow conspirator. Moheim's got some strong opinions about just about everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> she's, she's not one to be like, oh, uh, yeah, she's all right. No, she's going to be like, she is the peak of performance or like she's a bitch. <laughs> it's like, God, <laughs> Moheim, find a middle ground, my gal. Right. Right. Moheim, only hot takes. Yeah. No she's... cold takes, no room temperature <laughs> takes. She's a hot take dispenser. <laughs> we are into chapter nine. We join Alia standing on a platform of her temple, the fane of the Oracle. So it turns out through this chapter, we kind of figure out much like Paul, Alia is also kind of like super grossed out by the pilgrims and all the people that like have come to worship them. She's like, ugh, gross. In fact, quote, she hated this part of her life, but knew no way to evade the temple without bringing down destruction upon them all. The pilgrims, damn them, grew more numerous every day, end quote. <laughs> the parenthetical Blunt. damn them is pretty it's on so the nose. Good. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if she doesn't like them or something. Mm, yeah. With these thoughts in mind, she retreats to her private quarters and decides to take a nice long bath because 
Uh, she's kind of worked up. <laughs> she's got some. <laughs> she's got some feelings. I do like this little aside that taking a bath as a concept is something she learned from her other memories. Like she's like, oh God, my body's achy. I'm just sore. I'm anxious. I'm restless. And from her chamber of other lives, someone's like, take a bath. <laughs> she's like, what's that even? <laughs> That's a crazy idea. So right. she takes her bath. Like the rest of us, Alia cannot stop thinking about Duncan motherfucking Ido. <laughs> but unlike the rest of us, she also keeps getting these kind of like prescient flashes of a future where they're banging. So she tries to take a bath. She's like, you know what? This is going to help. This is going to be great. It totally doesn't. <laughs> Quote, it was lust in tension with chastity, she thought. Her flesh desired a mate, end quote. And mm. I know how you feel. <laughs> I know how you feel, yeah. Alia. Yeah, been we all there. been there. We've all been there. Mm-hmm. It's called puberty. <laughs> <laughs> so she gets out of the bath and she's like, you know what? Clearly relaxing didn't help. Let's get a couple of naked blades. We'll stay naked myself and uh, <laughs> do some strenuous life and death exercise. This will be fun. Maybe that'll distract me from thinking about that tall glass of water named hate <laughs> so she goes in on this training dummy which we'll talk a little bit about at the end in the morsels and as she's fighting we get this real sense of her mastery of combat remember alia was raised a fremen so in addition to all of the prana bendu and all of the training from all of the other memories she also has this like very real world experience and this training dummy, she takes it literally to level 11, which, as far as we're told, is an unprecedented number. Quote, that attacking blade could maim and it could kill. But the finest swordsman in the Imperium never went against more than seven lights. End quote. Wow. And she's on 11. She set it to 11, or rather, continued until 11. And before... <laughs> Before she can go further, Paul hits it with a thrown knife. And to be clear, he's from across the room. He throws this knife through a shield. So he had to like, I don't know, arc it somehow or like throw it at just perfect speed so that it gets through the shield. And he hits a one, I think it's a one millimeter or one centimeter button. Yeah through the like spinning blades and attacking arms and all of that stuff <laughs> and she's like yo who the fuck but also she's like oh i know exactly who the fuck because only one fucking person in the goddamn universe could do that that's insane right, right. <laughs> paul having just flexed on the room and just everybody in the universe is like what the fuck sis what are you doing that's so dangerous that's a naked blade there. They'll kill you. Also, you're naked. <laughs> and of course, in classic little sister fashion, Alia claps back. Quote, I'd have made it to 12 if you hadn't interfered. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> Paul's like, yeah, okay, sure. She's also like, oh, I bet you never took it past seven. He's like, yeah, okay, I did. Gurney caught me at 10 once. Um, now, we have to talk about briefly... Throughout this scene, Paul is noticing his sister's kind of development as a young woman. Quote, He took his time reading the reactions on her face and body, 
the flush of her exertions coloring her skin, the wet fullness of her lips, there was a disquieting femaleness about her that he had never considered in his sister, end quote. Hmm, mighty creepy. Yeah, but also I think just, I see his perspective as, in this moment, being kind of a mentat, detached, very logical, going, it is true, wow, you know, and and I like, I, I think we have these realizations about ourselves and about our friends, you know, you see your friend that you grew up with and you go, wow, they're a man now. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. They were a child boy when I met them and became <laughs> friends with them. And now they're a man. What the fuck? So I think that, it, you know, it kind of it is obviously forcing the reader to think back on Moheim and their suggestion of like, what is their current <laughs> level of intimacy? Like, what is the chance of us getting Paul and Alia to bang it out? And while that is possibly here in this chapter and surely later you know paul reflects on his own male response to his sister i think it's also pretty clear in the way that he thinks about it in the way that these characters are kind of continue to inhabit the same space that paul would really never do that or he would never yeah like he's not really actively going yeah this is an option he's fucking head over heels for chani and that aside, I think he's just in this moment as a mentat going, man, my sister is basically a grown woman. That's right. Hmm. I agree. This to me reads as a mentat summation and not much more than that. Right, right, right. But I, I think also like stepping out of the lore in the universe a bit, intentionally written in this way by Frank to make the reader think of what Moheim and Irulan just discussed. Yeah, the proximity of these chapters could not be a coincidence. Right. Totally uh, intentional. Right. Finally, they get to discussing the true reason that Paul and Stilgar are visiting. The Guild is plotting with some rogue Fremen to smuggle a worm off-planet in order to try basically demonopolizing Arrakis's hold on spice production. So right. creating a source of spice somewhere else. And this whole section is fascinating. And it's just so well written because it's clear that Paul and Alia are really on this whole other level of understanding in subtext and implications and everything. And Stilgar is kind of following along, like he's following along with the broad beats of the conversation. But both Paul and Alia kind of recognize that he starts getting caught up on them mentioning or talking about this weakness in their vision, this idea of. Well, I can't see that because they're hiding it like they hide everything. And Stilgar's like, wait, what the fuck did you just say? <laughs> Here's the quote. Stilgar was beginning to sense other forces, perhaps greater powers beyond that unknown horizon. His queen witch and sorcerer friend betrayed dangerous weaknesses. End quote. Oof. Yeah. So Alia in this moment basically is like, oh, let me posture and let me kind of talk in circles about this stuff, but also kind of explaining to him with this analogy. She's like, listen, clearly you're concerned about shit you don't need to be concerned about. Yeah, there's stuff that we can't see. It's like stuff behind the mountains, behind the sand dunes that you can't see past. So we can see really far. You can't. But even our sight has limits. And Stilgar's like, okay, okay, that's confusing. (laughs) (laughs) But the major takeaway for me is that if someone were to come and threaten us, they couldn't get to us without you seeing them. 
And also, they wouldn't get to us without me then being able to take action because they're going to come at us across the dunes, right? Yeah. It's very much reminiscent of the council scene a few chapters ago where Stilgar asks Paul about to peel and then Paul does this long roundabout philosophical TED talk. (laughs) TED talk. And then Stilgar just drops it. He's like, he's the Messiah. He must be right. I'm not going to push this. Kind of what happens here again. Yeah. And in some ways, it's it's really like heartbreaking to see this one of the most skilled and capable Fremen knaves being reduced to this like guy who's being spoon fed kind of bullshit explanations by his friends. Yeah. Wild stuff. And we'll talk a bit more about Ali and the takeaways later and circle back on this idea. Right. But first, let's jump into chapter 10. Here we join Paul and Edric, who are finally having that one-on-one annual review meeting that Paul promised. And the atmosphere of the room is polite, but tense. Right. Edric here is very uncomfortable in an enclosed room, and it makes me wonder if Paul did that intentionally. And Paul is trying to suss out exactly what Edric's angle is in all this. What's interesting is our boy Sightail is also in this room, just standing <laughs> off to the side. Uh-huh. And he is playing this vacant-faced aide for Edric. He's the one that dragged in Edric's big spice tank. Right. Now, the conversation between Edric and Paul then gets a little philosophical. And at one point, Edric asks, quote, can one destroy a god? End quote. In reference to Paul as a god. and. This leads then into this really cool passage that I just want to call out. It's this incredible visualization of what Mentat thinking might be like, or at least how it works for Paul. And I absolutely love it. It's almost this idea of a slide projector flipping through slides. Quote, why had that question been asked? What could Edric hope to gain by such effrontery? Paul's thoughts went flick. The association of Tleilaxi would be behind this move. Flick. The jihad's recent Sembu victory would bear on Edric's action. Flick. Various Bene Gesserit credos showed themselves here. Flick. End quote. Right. How cool is that? He's doing all these calculations. And we even get a sense of just how fast these calculations are. Because in the very next paragraph, we learn that, quote, a process involving thousands of information bits poured flickering through his computational awareness. It required perhaps three seconds, end quote. I think to your point that this is like a great passage and a great way of visualizing maybe how powerful Mentats are, it's a reminder that those thousands of bits of data don't have to be linked through like logical or, I don't know, they don't have to be linked in metadata. They don't have to be linked by the same hashtags. Paul, as an intuitive thinking human, can work at this speed, connecting what could be perceived as unrelated dots of data that do relate, but only through intuition, instinct, and insight, which is really just, this is why Mentats are all you need in a universe without computers, because this is the power of the Mentat mind. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I love that. The three eyes. Yeah. Intuition, instinct, and insight. 
That's and what makes Mentats iPhones. above and beyond your average <laughs> computer, beyond your fourth eye, the iPhone. The Intel. <laughs> yeah. The Intel. Oh my God. <laughs> it goes deeper. It goes the the Ixian <laughs> Intel, yeah. So Paul and Edric continue this sort of tap dancing conversation that they're having, each trying to put the other on edge and force the other to slip up. Right. And Edric then gets so bold as to basically accuse Paul and his Quisarate missionaries of being power-hungry phonies, basically. And Stilgar overhears this and, bless his old soul, is fucking ready to throw hands, (laughs) like reaches for his Chris knife and is ready to take out the fucking fish man. He's like, who wants fish sticks? I'm serving. (laughs) (laughs) It's fresh. It's fresh, fuckers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Amazing. Stilgar. (laughs) Don't talk shit about his boy, Paul. He'll stab you. Yeah, he's a ride or die. For real. (laughs) Now, it's clear that throughout this conversation between Paul and Edric, Frank is sharing some of his own cynical views on power and religion. They're having this sort of philosophical discussion. And Frank is maybe inserting some of his own views as well, stepping a bit outside of the lore here. Right. Edric at one point basically recites what is a core theme of the entire Dune saga. Quote, religion too is a weapon. What manner of weapon is religion when it becomes the government? End quote. Again, think back on that Benny Gesserit axiom. Ooh, yeah. This actually throws Paul off a little bit, and he realizes that Edric is not posing these doubts, these questions. What does it take to kill a god? Can you kill a god? Religion is a weapon. He's not posing these questions for him or against him, but for the other people in the room, Stilgar and the guards and the aide. He's sowing doubt in their messiah in their minds. And Paul then cuts this conversation short by scaring Edric, (laughs) this is such a great flex, with the threat of his deadly sister, a goddess who could, quote, strike you dead with her glance, end quote. And this is actually enough to scare Edric. He's like, oh, okay, okay, okay. Paul, I know you're the Kwisatz Haderach. I don't know what she is. Yeah. Some sort of pre-born Reverend Mother Kwisatz Haderach hybrid. I heard she had two knives against an 11 light robot and she was naked. (laughs) What the fuck? What the fuck? Yeah, she could for sure kill me with a glance. Yeah. Her reputation clearly precedes her. Right. So the conversation comes to an end. All in all, very weird conversation. Very weird, very tense. And it's clearly left both Paul and Stilgar a little off balance. And Stilgar then chides Paul for inviting Edric into this one-on-one conversation at all. Stilgar's like, that was risky. Why'd you do that? And Paul explains that as a mentat, he needs data. If he's going to see through Edric's plotting, whatever it may be, he needs to gather data. To which Stilgar actually has a very perceptive response. And I love that we see glimpses of the once great Nabe he used to be. Right. He says, quote, is it not dangerous to try meeting this threat only as a mentat? End quote. Even Paul's like, Damn, that was, yeah. all right, way to go still. <laughs> right. So then the scene continues, and as Paul thinks on what Stilgar has just said, Corbo rushes into the room 
with these Shiga wire reels of ancient Earth history. Paul had requested that Corbett do this for him. Right. And then we get to, uh, Leo, then we get to maybe what is the most iconic piece of dialogue in this entire book, if not the entire Dune series. At the very least, one of the most memorable exchanges that I'm sure if this is your first time reading Messiah, you went, oh, 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 oh. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is the part of Messiah where I was floored. Paul starts talking to both Stilgar and Corbett, who are in the room with him, about Genghis Khan and Adolf Hitler. And he says, quote, at a conservative estimate, I've killed 61 billion, sterilized 90 planets, completely demoralized 500 others. I've wiped out the followers of 40 religions, which had existed since. And then he gets cut off because Corbett interrupts. Right. But the point that he's making there is basically... He has done so much worse than some of the worst rulers in history. Genghis Khan, Adolf Hitler, who both had large body counts by Earth standards. But Paul is now the head of a galactic jihad. And these numbers are staggering. 61 billion. Billion 90 planets sterilized. 40 religions ended and wiped out. Probably in order to push his own religion forward wild stats to think about yeah again this book is the darker side of dune yeah this is our hero from dune (laughs) i love stilgar going genghis khan was he a sardaukar like he's a sounds sardaukar to me (laughs) and paul's like no no no, it's way earlier like (laughs) right twenty five thousand years earlier (laughs) yeah now this is obviously a very rare moment of paul being honest right taking that mask of the messiah off and just being the vulnerable paul atreides that we know from early on in the first book right quote we'll be a hundred generations recovering from wadib's jihad i find it hard to imagine that anyone will ever surpass this end quote right (laughs) and stilgar and korba are so uncomfortable right now (laughs) right they rarely, if ever, get to see their emperor and their messiah speak this way. They then sort of get down to business and change topics and move on to this report of some disturbances in the garden. There's a reception happening right now that Chani and Alia are attending in the Great Hall, and apparently some rowdy folks have made their way into the gardens. And Paul orders these troublemakers put out, and he tells Korba that he has to kill the hidden Sardaukar that are among this entourage in the Great Hall at this reception. Quote, We must keep in mind that there's more to religion and government than approving treaties and sermons. End quote. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Chilling stuff. Obviously, the implication there is that religion and government also requires the occasional murder. The occasional... <laughs> yeah slaughter of Sardaukar who are in your great hall at the moment. Chilling stuff. Chapter 11. We are out in the desert. Alia's crouched on the ground, chin on her fists, looking at the remains of Othame's daughter, victim of Sightail, although they haven't quite pieced that together yet. She's, uh, she's looking at this body because she was told to by Paul. 
she's looking at it like, man, I'm not finding fucking anything. <laughs> like this is yielding no revelations. And she's getting frustrated. She's like, damn it. Because the other side of her is recognizing her being there and looking at the body. Everyone else who's there is like, oh my God, St. Alia the Knife, the witch. She's like seeing into the truth of the world. And Alia's yeah. like, I am so fucking <laughs> lost right now. <laughs> Just like utterly awkward because she knows she's not doing what people think she's doing. Quote, Alia felt that she had accomplished nothing here except to cast her own aura of mystery about a scene that was already mysterious enough, end quote. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. I, I just imagine her crouching here in the sand going, like rubbing her chin. Hmm. Ah, uh, <laughs> oh, yes. Mm. Oh, oh, Indubitably, yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> what, what's other shit that smart people say? Uh, 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 perhaps, ah, uh, yes. Uh. <laughs> The aides are like, oh my God, she's, they're scribbling furiously trying to draw the scene or, you know. Right. So good. Yeah. <laughs> Hate, it sees through it. He's just like, oh, this is hilarious. So frustrated, she returns to the ornithopter with Hate. She's like, come on, we're going back. And they are having this conversation as they're flying back. He's flying. And folks, the sexual tension in this ornithopter is so mm. thick, it might as well be a desert thick spicy boy. It is 400 <laughs> yards wide and nearly impenetrable. <laughs> we get some insight here into the mind of the Gola. As always, hate is super honest. <laughs> Yo, you're going to fucking try to kill Paul? Yeah, probably. I don't know. <laughs> Not sure how. Haven't decided yet. And he's been having these flashes of a past life. You know, people will tell him, you remind me of uh, Duncan in so many ways. Oh, man, the way you do that is just like he did it. And it keeps freaking him out. He's like, I don't, I, it makes me feel weird. Like it makes me feel like maybe I'm not the person they think I am. And I might lean into this finding out who I was and I might disappoint people. You know, it's like, yeah. so, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit more in the takeaways. But after this moment where, you know, hate is going, I felt the touch of an arm, like it might've been your father. And it's fascinating to have this Gola, who's, you know, a created being from the Tleilaxu, talking to a pre-born reverend mother about this person that kind of ne neither of them have met, but also kind of someone they both know very, very well. Now, the conversation then turns to the threat of the Gola, right? She's like, are you really going to destroy Paul? And he's like, yeah, probably. Uh, <laughs> But then, you know, he says, ah, but we both know that Paul was basically already destroying himself. Quote, and you know as well that such a gift wasn't necessary. Your brother already was destroying himself quite adequately. End quote. Wow. Savage. Holly is like, what? Uh, yeah, but no one knew I thought that. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> and then he calls her out. He's like, and also, Ali, I got to say it. You are fucking wasting your powers, my girl. Like, come on. And she's offended and angry and everything. But also, he's kind of amused throughout this. And she's questioning. She's like, why isn't he afraid of me? Like, I have such an air of bravura and mystique. But he doesn't seem bothered at all. You know? Again, sexual tension weighing down on the room like a 15-pound weighted blanket. <laughs> Delightful in the winter. Uncomfortable in the Arrakis heat. Yeah. So... She's 
totally thrown off by this whole conversation. Again, he is very much in control. And basically, she's like, I'm going to tell on you. I don't know what to do. I'm going to tell on you to Paul. And Hate's like, yeah, I'm sorry to tell you this, Alia, but I already told Paul. Like, I told him everything. Um, and she's like, what the fuck? What did he say? Like, that's crazy. You said that to him? And Hate says, well, yeah, he, I, I won him over. Okay, so you, you won him over. What did you tell him to do? And he tells her, I told Paul to impose order, to keep his friends and destroy his enemies. Now she's annoyed by this, you know, quote, I will suggest to my brother that you are much too dangerous and must be destroyed, end quote. <laughs> and Hate's like, Alia, we just have to keep telling you this. I told him that, quote, a solution I've already suggested. Oh my God. End quote. What a dunk. Which is amazing. She's just like, ah, oh, this is not going well. Yeah. They land and she's like, oh, You're... it gets better. Yeah. Oh yeah. It gets better. They land the ornithopter. She's like, tell me what's on your mind right now. He then, <laughs> he then takes her chin in his hand and before she can move, which is a remarkable sentence considering she was fighting an 11 light sword machine earlier, plants a light, gentle kiss on her lips. Oh my God. <laughs> the audacity. Oh my God. This is like the goddess that can kill you with a glance. And he's like, smooch. <laughs> smooch. Sup, Alia. And meanwhile, the guards outside laugh. Like there's like a couple, there's a little line. Right, they're like giggling. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and they get it. They're like, yeah, she's not yeah, out of his it's league. Duncan. No one's out of his league. He's Duncan fucking Idaho. He's hate. He's great. <laughs> and they they have this incredible exchange. And again, we're gonna we're gonna pull this card again. We're gonna play this card in attack mode. <laughs> we're gonna act this out in full. Abu, Alia or Hate? Oh boy. Uh, I think you need to continue your streak as Alia from our from our opening bit. Okay, I'll be sure. Hate. Sounds good. I should have you flayed. Because I'm dangerous? Because you presume too much. I presume nothing. I take nothing, which is not first offered to me. Be glad I did not take all that was offered. Oh. Come along. We've dallied too long on a fool's errand. I'll tell him everything you've said and everything you did. Good. He will order you executed. Why? Because I took the kiss I wanted? The kiss you wanted. All right, Alia. The kiss you wanted then. Shit! <laughs> Hello! My God. Oh my God. Is anyone else sweating a bit? Like, <laughs> Also, again, we're in Alia's perspective here, and she's like, I mean, yeah. <laughs> True. I did right. want that. Um, calling me out. All right. Yeah. And again, Hates totally saw through that. He knew that. I do not take anything that's not offered to me. Be glad I didn't take all that was offered. Good she Lord. wants more than that. And Hate knows. Yeah. He's just playing hard to get. You know, he's a player. My God. I mean, it's just almost unbelievable, if not for the fact that this is the body of Duncan Idaho. <laughs> Incredible stuff. Sinsuni philosopher, yeah. Mentat, swordmaster from the schools of Ganaz, and certifiable hottie. <laughs> so, oh yeah, woo! All right, I need a glass of water and I need to cool down. Maybe I'll take a bath and train with a training <laughs> dummy. 
do it in the while nude. I'm doing yeah. that. Uh-huh. Yeah, in the nude, of course. That, of course, that was implied. Liam. That was implied. <laughs> while I'm doing that, let's take a quick break, and after we'll get into our key takeaways. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you enjoyed your break. Let's talk about the takeaways from this week's reading. So, takeaway number one, the struggle of a lowly gola. Yes. Oh, boy, hate. Heartbreaking. We learned a lot about golas. <laughs> in this chapter, and a lot of it from Hate's perspective. Yeah, I mean, we spend a lot of time, if not in Hate's head, with characters who are asking to get in Hate's head, right? Like right, that right. entire ornithopter conversation that he has with Alia. The conversation when he first meets Paul, and Paul is trying to suss him out. What's the end game here with this Duncan Idaho Gola that the Tleilaxu and the Guild are gifting me? Right. Everyone is trying to figure out what hate's deal is and the interesting part is that so is hate (laughs) (laughs) right yeah people are like i wonder Hate's like yeah (laughs) fucking me too welcome to the party right like get in line so we learned a bit more about hate and the thing i want to say before we get into this first takeaway sort of unpacking this struggle of the gola one thing i did want to say and i'm curious leo if you feel the same but much like Alia, it's pretty hard for me not to find myself drawn to hate in this book. I'm just drawn to this way that he talks so honestly. Right. And the way he's so blunt, especially with Paul and Alia. I mean, he seemingly doesn't even fear the Atreides like so many of their followers and worshipers do. He is not wrapped up in this mystique around Paul Atreides and Alia, Alia of the Knife. And what I find so interesting about that is hate is almost this mirror image contrast to a character like Stilgar, who we knew was this independent, capable leader of the Fremen, who has now sort of been, we joked in our last episode, has sort of had this glow down to... Paul's secretary and someone who worships this messiah. It's interesting that hate is now sort of playing that character of the blunt, honest, non-worshipper that can sort of burst both Paul and Alia's bubbles, which he does, which, which we'll unpack in a bit. But I'm curious, is, do you find yourself drawn to the character of hate? Is he as interesting to you as he is to me? Yeah, no, definitely. The thing about hate is... 
his, my my impression of him aligns with his intention as an in-world plot device, right? Like the Twi'laksu built him to shock Paul back to an earlier time and to be a sort of sounding board for a lot of what people are just saying. You know, like people are behaving in a certain way and he's there to kind of say, hey, you're behaving in this way. And Ollie <laughs> is like, what? No. And all it takes is just him going, yeah, how are you using your powers? And she's like, oh, fuck, <laughs> damn it. Right. So that he is a sort of sounding board. He's something off of which every other character becomes more interesting. Mm, mm -hmm. Paul would be a less interesting character in this book if he wasn't amused by and curious about hate. Alia would be less interesting if she wasn't like drawn to him. Amused by. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, deeply turned on by. Yeah. <laughs> He is a character that makes every other character more interesting and himself being this introduction to what is a Gola and what is a Zen Sunni philosopher and who are the Tleilaxu and how do Tleilaxu schemes work? All of those things are embodied in hate and it helps that the package is a mighty fucking fine one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, hashtag drawn to him. Hashtag drawn to him. Definitely. Well, let's actually talk about him as a Tleilaxu creation, because the sort of hard truth that hate himself will tell you is that he was created as a weapon meant to destroy Paul. And hate is the first one to acknowledge this. He knows his own purpose and why the Tleilaxu created him. And what I find so fascinating about that is, to me, that's kind of sad. Yeah. Like to know that you have been created, that you are this artificial being who is simply part of someone else's political game, right? Like you are just a tool in their scheming. You are to them nothing more than a means to an end. But the reality is, is that hate himself, even if he is an imitation of Duncan Idaho, is a fully fledged person, a being. Yeah, And so I find that so, so interesting that he knows this hyper-specific purpose that he has been created for. And if you dig a little deeper in the encyclopedia, actually, hate is not the only Gola that the Tleilaxu who have ever created in their history. And the encyclopedia actually tells us that his very, very unique role and his very specific purpose in destroying Paul is actually pretty uncommon for Golas. Quote, Few Golas can have been prepared as Duncan Idaho was for a single task. Never many in number, they served throughout the universe as philosophers, moralists, and administrative functionaries. Infrequently, killer mentats, killer souk doctors, <laughs> Casual. and military okay. leaders were also generated for specific markets. End quote. Yeah. So as we can see, Golas were these like general use tools. Right, right. Now, of course, beyond his purpose as this weapon to be used against Paul, hate struggles to come to terms with his past life. You mentioned earlier, Leo, that people around him keep mentioning Duncan Idaho. Right. Oh, you do that so like him. You remind me of him. And he, of course, has no memories. Golas do not have memories of their genetic past lives. Right. But he does tell Alia in today's reading 
that he gets these flashes of imagery that aren't exactly memories, but they're these like sort of deja vu like flashes. Quote, I feel eagerness. I'm uneasy. There's a tendency to tremble and I must devote effort to controlling it. I get flashes of imagery. End quote. Yeah, I mean, we we see that happen to him, right? As they're flying over, I think, El Quds, El Quds, basically the location of Duke Leto's skull. Quote, he swallowed, shook his head, looked at her, the metal eyes glistening. I felt an arm on my shoulders, he whispered. I felt it, an arm. His throat worked. It was a friend. It was my friend. End quote. Wow. Yeah, the idea of feeling a friend's arm around your shoulders, but a friend you've never known, a friend you've never met, and how sad that must be, and how alienating that must be, and how bizarre it must feel, not only as a person, but also keep in mind, he's a mentat with like no data to support his computations in this way. So it's really got to be an uncomfortable position to be in on a number of psychological levels. Yeah. It's so sad. I mean, hate is almost this weird enigma of he knows exactly what his purpose is, what he was created for, but he doesn't know himself. He's constantly compared to this other person that he doesn't know or have any memories of, maybe has these flashbacks to, but he doesn't truly know himself as his own being. Right. It's really interesting. I mean, I'm maybe thinking too much into it, which is extremely on brand for us. But to <laughs> sure. me, the Gola is just this almost tragic figure. Hate is, I, I feel empathy for hate. In the end, that's kind of what makes him as interesting of a character as he is, because that's just such an interesting dynamic to have. Yeah, I love him. I love hate. He's such a great part of this story, such a fascinating character. And of course, Frank, who turns out is a great writer, I guess. Yeah. Does a brilliant uh, job. You know, he's all right. <laughs> right. He's okay. He's all right. Well, let's talk about our second takeaway. Another fascinating character and another character that we spend a lot of time with in these first chapters. Yes. Alia, the weirdest fucking girl in the whole world. <laughs> Alia. <laughs> also an Atreides, also inadvertently kind of a byproduct of the centuries-long breeding program. And across the Imperium, millions and millions and millions of people, probably billions of people, worship her. And she hates it. <laughs> She's like, this <laughs> fucking sucks. This is not what I signed up for when I was forced into full consciousness as a pre-born child. And yet that's what she was dealt in life. That's her lot, you know? Yeah. Recall the quote from earlier. Those pilgrims. Damn them. <laughs> Those damn fucking pilgrims. Get out of here. <laughs> Filthy animals. Filthy animals. They're terrible. Yeah. Alia finds herself in a very similar situation to Paul. This godhead has been thrust upon her. She really has had little to no choice in it, maybe even less choice than Paul. And of course, we know she despises it just as much as Paul does. Brother and sister find themselves in very similar situations here. And... What's clear is that where Paul is to the Fremen, their holy messiah, this pillar of righteousness and justice, Alia plays almost 
this mirror image where she is the wild goddess that is to be feared. Right. Yeah. We get this really great chapter excerpt at the start of one of today's chapters, a report from Irulan about St. Ali of the Knife. And this is a great picture of how the Fremen and other worshipers in this religion see Alia as compared to Paul. Right. Quote, The Fremen see her as the earth figure, a demigoddess whose special charge is to protect the tribes through her powers of violence. She is reverend mother to their reverend mothers, to pilgrims who seek her out with demands that she restore virility or make the barren fruitful, she is a form of anti-mentat. She feeds on that proof that the analytic has limits. She represents ultimate tension. She is the virgin harlot, witty, vulgar, cruel, as destructive in her whims as a Coriolis storm. End quote. Man. First of all, just beautiful writing. Beautiful. Second of all, it really does, you know, it's almost like Paul, at the end of Dune, had this internal dichotomy of Muad'Dib and Paul Atreides. Paul Atreides, the political figure who honors his word to the emperor, Muad'Dib of the Fremen, who does not, and is of the desert, and is of the Fremen. Alia, in so many ways, has kind of assumed that mantle, it seems like. Right. Like, yeah, Paul has taken Shaddam's place and is dealing with all of these imperial issues, all these political issues, while Ali is the one that'll fucking stab you because she's the <laughs> Fremen. And that's one way of resolving issues for Fremen. No, that's so true. So kind of the question comes up and something that honestly, I find myself wondering at times, where does the Kwisatz Haderach title begin and end? Paul is the byproduct of all this, and it was his transformation into effectively a reverend mother that made him the Kwisatz Haderach. Is Alia also a Kwisatz Haderach, and does she have the, those kind of same powers? Are they identical skill sets, or is there specialization? Yeah, I mean, that is what comes to mind when you're like, okay, if both Paul and Alia are considered gods, do they have the same powers? And this one's tough because. It depends so much on how you define Kwisatz Haderach. Like, what is the exact power set for what we're calling a Kwisatz Haderach? And it's clear that the Bene Gesserit want to preserve both of their genetics. So both are clearly valuable. Right. Either one of them is good enough for the Bene Gesserit because they both contain the pure genetics of Jessica of the Harkonnen and Leto Atreides. Right. So that begs the question, is she also a Kwisatz Haderach? And that's tough because I think on one level, you could say, no, she's not a Kwisatz Haderach because she's a female. And the Bene Gesserit have spent hundreds of years and generations searching for the male they can see into the place that they cannot access. Right. So Paul would be the Kwisatz Haderach because he can see into that dark place so the assumption is, well, if Alia is also a reverend mother with Benny Gesserit training, being pre-born that way through her mother, she would also be unable to access that dark place that only a male would be able to, based on what the Benny Gesserit have been searching for. Right. Uh, I think the reality, the sort of longer answer is maybe, because we 
do see some signs of Alia's Prussian abilities, even in today's chapters. Yeah, she's clearly got it. But there is a question of like how far those capabilities extend. And I think that's also a question that isn't answered yet for us or for any of the characters. And they use that. They're playing on that. And that's Paul's threat to Edric. Like, bro, how far does my sister's powers extend? And Edric's like, I I don't know. And Paul's like, yeah. Yeah, neither do we. (laughs) Welcome to the party. (laughs) Right. You're totally right, Leo. She is that wild card that Paul has in his pocket that he can use. Yeah. Now, of course, in today's reading, we also know that she does have prescient visions, maybe too strong a word, but at least glimpses of a future. Because in that chapter we talked about where she took the bath and did the draining, she has these visions of a lover in the future. Quote, he was near, she knew, that shadow figure of a man she could sense in her future but could not see. It angered her that no power of prescience could put flesh on that figure, end quote. Just a spooky skeleton. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) (laughs) No, I get, yeah, she's frustrated that her power, it is funny to think though, she's like, ah, I just see this damn skeleton, (laughs) sexy, sexy skeleton. (laughs) No, it, it is clear that she is really just desperate to know who this person is and why they keep appearing in her dreams. Again, very reminiscent of Paul seeing Chani, though even as a child, Paul was seeing as he dreamed these kind of clear visions. And once he arrived on Arrakis, he was as though he were in the vision, you know, like multiple times he gets lost in visions and goes, is this happening now? Or am I having a vision And it's clear that that's not happening for Alia. Yeah, exactly. So all of that being said, it's clear Alia's power, at least as far as prescient visions go, doesn't quite reach the heights that Paul's do. But Alia has other advantages that Paul maybe doesn't. Because again, remember, she is a pre-born reverend mother. She didn't go through the decades of training that a Bene Gesserit adept would before taking their reverend mother test and undergoing the spice agony. She just popped out of the womb with all of that in her head already. All those powers of observation, that muscle control that she was even exercising as a toddler in the first book. And of course, access to other memory, all of these reverend mothers in her mind that can assist her with infinite knowledge that goes back generations. Yeah. Paul, of course, has Benny Gesserit training through his mother. He underwent his own version of the spice agony with the water of life and the coma. But I at least don't think that necessarily means he could match exactly one for one a reverend mother who has been doing it her whole life. You mean like in regards to mastery over things like the voice and Pranabindu? Yeah. Exactly. I wonder. Um, Ooh. Because previous hit me, hit to his... Me, well, prior to his Kwisatz Haderach Awakening, I'd agree 100%. But I don't know. I'm a little on the fence. I'm like, once you become fully awakened and you have access to all of your other memories, I imagine that's pretty equalizing. You know, like all of the teachers that would make Alia great are also in Paul. <laughs> 
No, it's true. And again, this this is like this is the Dune version of like could Goku beat Saitama? You know, <laughs> yeah. like we don't know. Like, Except could no, Paul beat no. Alia? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I take issue with that, but this is not the podcast for that. <laughs> sure. Uh huh. And so, yeah, like, I don't think there are concrete answers. And a lot of what I think you and I are saying are just conjecture and theorizing about where their power levels are and right, right. who has the advantage, who doesn't. Point is, both of them are leagues and leagues ahead of the next person down. Right. It's funny because that, to that point, Alia even comments on that in this chapter. In the chapter where she's training in the nude, <laughs> there's a moment where she says she knew that she couldn't match Paul in his logic because of Paul's Mentat training. So she leans more into her Benny Gesserit strengths, which, to your point, maybe she has better marshalling of. But I think it is worth remembering that because Paul was trained as a mentat as a kid from and by Thufir, that does give him an edge against yes. many other things. And also, I do feel like he takes to Zen Sunni philosophizing pretty quickly as well. But yeah, it is interesting to kind of compare their similarities, but to really highlight their differences because they're there and they're talked about. Exactly. And you know what? Let's open this up to our listeners. Gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Could Goku beat Saitama? <laughs> and also, who wins Paul versus Alia head-to-head prescient battle? Yeah. So those are our two takeaways for today's reading. This focus on the Gola and learning more about him, learning more about hate as a character, as almost a foil to so many of our other main characters. And of course the person that he is potentially getting romantically involved with, Alia the witch. Right. Alia, the sister of the Messiah, burdened with many of the same responsibilities and many of the same powers that he has as well. Two fascinating, fascinating characters that we learned so much about in today's readings. Right. And with that, we're going to switch over to our spice morsels, after another quick break. So hang out, stay tuned. We'll be right back after this. All right, folks, welcome back. Thank you for bearing with us on this epically long episode. Let's dive into our final segment for today, the spice morsels. We have Prajna meditation. So when we join Moheim in her prison cell, we get this sentence. The Reverend Mother had been engaged in Prajna meditation interspersed with examinations of the tarot. End quote. Now, as always, I'm like, hey, new term, let's look it up. And we're going to talk about it. So first I want to say what the kind of real-world inspiration that Frank drew from, because it is related, and then how it kind of evolved in the 30,000 years between now and Dune. The Sanskrit term Prajna is used in a couple of different practices, in Hinduism, this is the quote, is used to refer to the highest and purest form of wisdom, intelligence, and understanding. And then, separately, in Buddhism, prajna is the transcendental wisdom or supreme knowledge gained through intuitive insight. So again, two pretty great things. I'm very team prajna. Seems like a good thing. From the Dune Encyclopedia, 
we learn that Prajna actually joins Adab, the demanding memory, as another ability that Bene Gesserits are trained in. This is a sort of a second-level functional state that Bene Gesserits can adopt or can kind of transition into. Quote, The Prajna meditation trance is used for deep understanding and for the special state of seeing some sisters are capable of performing, a state usually augmented with enhancement by chemicals such as melange. End quote. So we know Mohan, with her kind of low-calorie prescience, has access to this secondary state. She's got this ability. And in that moment, you know, this moment where she's locked up in a cell, she's not anticipating getting off the planet alive, she's using the prajna meditation state at the beginning of this scene to kind of more deeply understand her findings from the Dune Tarot, what the Dune Tarot is telling her. Dang, so cool. <laughs> I am glad I did that 50 minutes of research. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The Benny Gesserit, man, they got all of these powers. Yeah, they do. Alrighty, our next morsel is Servox and Swordbots. So in today's reading, we get this passage from Alia's training scene. Quote, Alia followed with the tip of the long blade, thinking as she often did that the thing could almost be alive. But it was only servo motors and complex reflector circuits designed to lure the eyes away from danger, to confuse and teach. It was an instrument geared to react as she reacted, an anti-self, which moved as she moved, balancing light on its prisms, shifting its target, offering its counter blade. End quote. Hell yeah. That sounds complicated, and I certainly have a hard time picturing what that could be. Now, what are Servox, you might ask? Well, the terminology of the Imperium from Dune gives us a definition. Quote, Clock set mechanism to perform simple tasks. One of the limited automatic devices permitted after the Butlerian Jihad. End quote. Mm. There we go. For the folks wondering if this is artificial intelligence. No. But it is an automatic device that, just like Alia said, seems like it could almost be alive but it's just servo motors designed to be the anti-self to react to her movements. Right. So all of that is to say, Alia's little Servok battle partner is a complex mechanical device that does everything we see it doing solely on this clock set mechanism of servo motors and reflector circuits. Are those words just sci-fi mumbo jumbo? <laughs> yeah, probably. Right. But Alia turning that training dummy up to 11 predates Spinal Tap by like 15 years. So uh, we're here for it. <laughs> oh my God. That's true. The next morsel, Steersmen versus Navigators. I was curious. Maybe you were too. Let's talk about it. So describing Edric the Steersman from the last episode, to be clear what we're talking about, Navigators versus Steersmen. Quote, the Guildsman was an elongated figure. Vaguely humanoid with finned feet and hugely fanned, membranous hands, a fish in a strange sea. His tank's vents emitted a pale orange cloud rich with the spell of the geriatric spice melange. End quote. So I 100% picture like Abraham from the Hellboy movie or the yeah. Shape of Water, the Shape of Water guy. Yep. <laughs> uh, 100%. Yeah. So 
Recall in Dune, when Paul is actively kind of stripping Shaddam of his uh, Air Jordans, his shorts, his chome <laughs> holdings, but especially right. his Air Jordans, uh, which were not creased, to be clear. They were uncreased. Yeah. Looked Worth great. more than his chome holdings. Yeah, he spent a lot on them. There were two guild navigators present, but he describes them as, quote, the two fat ones dressed in gray, end quote, which is a little insensitive, but ultimately is not mentioning that they are any kind of like fishy, distorted people. They're just right. guys. There's just a couple of guys. From the Dune Encyclopedia, navigators use their limited prescience to time when the highliner drops from what we kind of understand as space and time into something called the void. <laughs> and then they kind of sit back and they passively track their relative position in the void to the real world as the ship kind of makes its light speed or faster than light speed trip. Meanwhile, during this time, so they, they control the drop. They're like, okay, let's drop into the void in three, two, one. It even says they tell passengers, buckle up, we're getting ready. And everyone has to kind of stop moving. And then they drop. They're in the void now. And people can kind of go back to moving around. Control over the Highliner is then passed to the steersman, like Edric, who actively adjusts the ship's course through the void to, quote, avoid catastrophe, which <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what you're like dodging in right. the void. What is in the void that you're dodging? <laughs> I kind of assumed nothing. Right. Because of, you know, the word, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> the encyclopedia says that they do this by moving very delicately within their tanks, like somehow maybe dancing or controlling via very, very minute movements, which is why they have been bred to be basically these deformed floaty fishmen. All of this is to say Edric, when he's on the clock, is basically dancing those highliners to safety <laughs> while they tumble through the void. And I'm sure the whole picture time that, on his <laughs> picture that the whole time, I'm sure he's whining and complaining. hundred oh, yeah. percent. You know it. You know it. Well, Leo, we've done it. Yeah. Another book club in the books. Tell our listeners, Leo, where they have <laughs> oh, to read to next. Man. For part four. What? Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> four next uh, episodes reading. <laughs> God bless. Make sure you've read up to page 202, which of course ends on the sentence. You know what? Actually, what sentence, Avu, does it end on? <laughs> Passing it back to you. Oh, well, I appreciate the baton pass. You know what? The sentence that folks want to read up to, if they uh -huh. don't have the same paperback copy that we do, that ends yeah, sure. on page 202, is, quote, you know what, Leo? I'll let you take it from here if you'd like. I'm going to pass the baton bag to you. Okay. So you've said the word quote. That's what you've added. Great. Okay, I'll say it. Quote, this fetus knows the necessity for speed. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> Which is beautiful. Good. I mean, if that's not the next tagline for the next Fast and Furious movement, <laughs> I'm rioting in the streets. That's, this fetus knows the necessity for speed. Oh, my God. It is all family. about family. <laughs> family, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, read up to there. All right. Go. <laughs> <laughs> well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond 
Logic, so help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Path. Wow. You did exactly what I was hoping you would with the baton pass. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I was like, I hope he passes it back to me and then I pass back to him and we do this bit back and forth. (laughs) Oh, my God. I slam dunked that all of you. Hell yeah.